0: Heavenly Father, now as we open your word, may we be blessed and edified together to sit under it, and as we, we sit under it as, as, as a people brought together, may we be encouraged, strengthened, held accountable, and, and edified by each other's uh, presence here, even as the word is proclaimed to us as the people whom this word have brought together. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 20. We are jumping right back into the chronicler's account of the victories and the conquests of David that we were considering last week. We're still enjoying, we're basking in this glorious account of David's reign, the victorious reign of the Messiah. We are reading one of the highlights of Israel's history. We can read along like this original audience of Chronicles, the returned exiles uh, read, and we can enjoy David being on his throne. We can say, isn't it good when the Messiah is reigning? All of the points that we considered last week about the sweetness of David's victories are still very much in view here. That the Lord is giving victory to David, that David is using those victories to establish the dwelling place for God among his people. And we're, we're now in our text right in the middle of the war with the Ammonites. And, and we're going to see that third point from last week continue to play out as the Messiah, Messiah restores those shamed people, particularly the shamed ambassadors um, who were embarrassed by Hanun, the king of the Ammonites. We have a short passage today, but here we see three more wonderful truths about the sweetness of the Messiah being on his throne that we want to look at. I want to dwell on how this first encouraged the original readers of Chronicles and how it still should encourage us as we look to our Messiah who is currently reigning and whose reign we hope for when he will be seen on his throne for all time. So let's read all of 1 Chronicles 20 together. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led out the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, and Joab struck down Rabbah and overthrew it. And David took the crown of their king from his head. He found that it weighed a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and iron, picks and axes. And thus David did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. And after this there arose war with the Philistines at Gezer, then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Sippai, who was one of the descendants of the giants, and the Philistines were subdued. And there was war, again war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lamai, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also was descended from the giants." And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, struck him down. These were descended from the giants of Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Before we look at what we do see in this chronicler's account of David's victories, we have to think about what we don't see. Our passage begins this way. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. This verse quotes almost word for word the account of this battle that we find in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel 11. So good students of the chronicles of Samuel and kings would read this and immediately say, oh, I know how this continues. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And so unfolds the great tragedy of David's life. His adultery with Bathsheba that leads to murder, that leads to To a heavy price paid by his family, a child dying, leading to the sin of Ammon with his sister and Absalom, and David going into exile again. All of these horrible things take place, and yet, Chronicles continues and Joab struck down Rabbah and overthrew it, and David took the crown of their king from his head. Nothing? Not a word? About Uriah and Bathsheba, are these events not important, just glory and victory for David? There are similar omissions in this passage. In 2 Samuel, Joab has to coerce David to come down to Rabbah. David, get down here, I'm going to have to take the city, and they're going to name it after me instead of you. Instances of David's weakness, his frailty, are taken out of this account Is this revisionist history? Is it ancient Israelite propaganda? Certainly, progressive scholars who do not believe in the authority of the scriptures have said this, but they give less credit to the authors of scripture than they do to the authors of secular history. We have to think about why Chronicles was written. The people of Israel already had Samuel Kings. They had other accounts. This was in wide circulation. They have these books, and they know that the goal of those books is to give an event-by-event account, a detailed history of what took place in the lives of David and the other kings. Chronicles is representing them that history with a specific purpose. Now, a good student of French history would know all the events that took place in the French Revolution, the rise of Napoleon. They could recount all those events to you, but they would still appreciate if a new book came out highlighting a theme that they had not seen in those events. Let's look at how France's rejection of Protestantism and clinging to the Catholic Church and its power led to the fall of the French kingship and the rise of Napoleon. This wouldn't be seen by them. That new book wouldn't be seen as revisionist history. It would be shown to be taking those events and demonstrating something that they did not yet see. It's shedding new light on them. And in fact, the more they knew those events of history, the better they would appreciate the themes that this new work had shown them. Chronicles is doing exactly that. It is offering a representation of historical events to people who already know those events so that they can clearly see something that was actually already true and wonderful in those events. Showing God's plan for his people and his Messiah in particular. Showing how God is carrying out his plan to dwell with his people in peace. To show how sweet it is when the Messiah is on his throne. To show those readers that the promises that he had made to the Messiah were being kept, were not be, being rescinded. The chronicler presents this to a people who are well aware of what is going on in the life of David the man while all this is taking place. His sin, his failure, his repentance. What Chronicle shows is what is happening to David the king. David, the Messiah, even while David's sin is affecting his life in a significant way, the Lord is making great use of his reign. David's messianic ministry is so empowered by God that his own sin can't diminish it. And that's our first point this morning. The reign of the Messiah succeeds despite all sin. We also get to glimpse here just the wonderful grace that God has shown to David. In the second Samuel account of his sin, we know that Nathan comes to David and reveals his sin to him, and David repents. He seeks forgiveness from God. And though David learns that sin comes with terrible consequences, Nathan does say, the Lord has put away your sin. Chronicles shows us that this is true. It shows us that the sin is forgotten, that it doesn't change how God uses David. God doesn't abandon him. God continues to make use of him as a king. Chronicles is a testament to God's grace to David, but it is also a testament to the certainty of God's plan for his Messiah. God doesn't let anything ruin the plan that he has for his anointed king. Everything God wants to happen to David happens. The Philistines can't stop it. The Ammonites can't stop it. David can't stop it. His sin can't stop it. This is the utter surety of the reign of the Messiah. And the readers of Chronicles need to hear this because they know this horrible state that they're in is not just due to foreign enemies. It is because of their own sin. The exile was the promised response to the people forgetting God and worshiping idols. And that guilt might make them wonder whether or not God would abandon them. Maybe God was able to defeat their enemies. Maybe he could do everything that he wanted to do, but their sin might have been the problem. That was the reason God was going to abandon them. Watching God honor and restore David, David the adulterer, David the murderer, To even see how God continued to make use of him, how God never set him aside as king when he didn't deserve it is an encouragement these people needed to hear. God's promises are always made to sinful people. This isn't meant to encourage sin. It encourages us to repent and run to God as David did. If you are his, your sin cannot affect his plan one bit. David's didn't the readers of Chronicles couldn't, your sin can't either. Because David's descendant did come. God did not abandon his people, the king from the line of Jesse, the greater David. That king came, and he didn't just succeed despite all sin. His character rose to match the messianic reign that God had set aside for him. David's descendant was able even to take upon himself the sins of others take on David's sin, the sin of the exiles, take on our sin because his character was perfect and he bore it to the cross. Jesus, the perfect Messiah, could take the punishment for us, could bear our sinful records so that David, so that we ourselves, so that these post-exilic Israelites could receive his perfect record, could continue to enjoy God honoring his promises to us. Our great Messiah defeats sin and defeats it for all those who trust in him. Christ the Messiah will reign over a kingdom of failures, of sinful, wicked, good-for-nothing failures who he has restored and saved and even sanctified and glorified. An eternal kingdom, not of worthy winners, But forgiven sinners, a kingdom of grace. So do not let your sin drive you to despair, thinking that it means you must be forgotten and abandoned by God. As soon as you see your sin, run to the mercy of Christ. It is a lie of the devil that your sin is too much for him, too great for him to forgive or cleanse. Look at all that he has forgiven. Look at the grace and restoration shown even to David. He made David a king, a picture of Christ. Even while David was guilty of the most horrible sin, he was enough for David's sin. Jesus is enough for yours. And know that when you lay your sin before him, when you reject him, it, when you run to him, he remembers it no more. He gives you his spirit so you can be strong with the strength of his might to go to war against your sin. And he will grant that final victory when your faith becomes sight. So those are the sweet truths that we see in the things that aren't in our passage this morning. But we better also look at the things that are there. Let's look again at verses 1 to 3 to see what Chronicles does show us about the reign of the Messiah. In the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle, Joab led out the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem and Joab struck down Rabbah and overthrew it. The, and David took the crown of their king from his head. He found that it weighed a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and axes, and thus did David to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So you remember the beginning of this episode from last week. David sends an envoy of peace to Hanun, because he had peace with his father. Hanun rejects it, utterly shames David's spies. Uh, or David's ambassadors, treats them like spies, and David restores those men, and then he knows that he must defeat Hanun and the Ammonites. They've become a stench to him. So David goes to war, Hanun gets the Syrians involved, he feels very confident, and David utterly defeats him. And here we see the final blows of that war. Joab's men overthrow Rabbah, the Ammonite capital. They don't just win the battle, they topple the government. And David places the crown of the Ammonites, of Hanun himself, on his own head. And it is made of one talent, 75 pounds of gold. For reference, that is about the weight of an entire wheel of Parmesan. That reference is probably more relevant to me than it is for you. That is the weight of about three wheels of Gouda. The author needs to note this. He needs to note also this precious stone that has been put in the crown. He wants you to know that the Ammonites have worked really hard to create the most splendid picture of royal rule in the ancient world, and David has taken it. This is not an everyday crown. This is not made for going out and inspecting farmers in the field every day. This is symbolic of the glory of the Ammonite people. Their wealth, their might, their prominence, and David takes it. He doesn't sign a treaty with them. He doesn't rule over them, leaving their rulers as vassal kings. He takes the big crown and he puts it on his head. He declares himself their king, and all that once belonged to the Ammonites belongs to David. All their people serve him, all their cities are his, all their plunder is his. All the glories of that absurdly luxurious, enormous crown belong to David. The kingdom of his enemies has become the kingdom of the Messiah. This episode would be extremely encouraging for the post-exilic Israelite people who are reading Chronicles. If you look in Nehemiah, which takes place around the time when Chronicles is written, we see that there's two major antagonists that are leading the peoples around uh, the Jews to uh, keep them from building the temple, from building the wall, who are antagonizing them. And the leaders of these antagonists are Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite tried to stop the wall from being built by sending letters to many corrupt Jewish leaders. His greatest insult comes in Nehemiah 13, when Tobiah the Ammonite has a bedchamber installed for himself in the temple, the newly built temple. Tobiah wants to occupy a space in the household, the throne room of God. Now, Nehemiah throws him out, of course, but how sweet also would it be for these readers to hear that their Messiah, the king by God's power, took that big crown of the Ammonites and put it on his own head. God's commitment is that just as their own sin can't stand in the way of the Messiah, neither can Tobiah or Sanballat or the most nefarious, wicked, powerful enemies. Christ came to carry out global victories, of which David's victories were just a foretaste. David's victories made him prominent among all the kingdoms of the region. Christ came to take those victories to the whole world, to all creation, to what is seen and unseen, until the last trumpet blows And heaven proclaims, as we hear in Revelation 11, that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This is the hope of those original readers when this Ammonite is trying to take a spot in the temple. God gave the Messiah their crown before, and he will lay low every enemy in the future, What God has done once is his commitment that he will continue to act according to his character. Every Ammonite and Syrian and Assyrian and Roman that stands between the Messiah and his throne will be laid low. And God will plunder those nations. He will take their spoil. He will take their crown. Even many people as spoil for his own house. He will wear an adorned crown representing the splendor of the nations and our worship is a part of the victorious crown of the Messiah. We crown him Lord of all in our worship. We adorn him as those precious stones that he has plundered out of the kingdoms of the world to be a testament to his glory. So even now, As we gather, we get a foretaste of the crowning of the Messiah, the sweetness of the glory that he has taken for himself out of the world. And that plan will certainly be completed. It will certainly come about because this is God's plan for Jesus. David, at that moment, trying to balance that 75-pound crown on his head is just a fleeting illustration of the eternal glory of all this world that will adorn Jesus, never to be removed. We don't need to live our lives like we are uncertain about the outcome of history, like every new development, every new problem can shake our confidence in what God is doing. When things seem to be on the rocks for the gospel and the people of Christ, for the church, you just ask one question. What is God's plan for Christ today? What does God want for the Messiah today, right now? His plan is still for Christ, enthroned, crowned with all the kingdoms of the earth, kneeling before him, subjected to him, and his people restored forgiven, living in faithful righteousness in the peace of God. Nothing stands in the way of that future. That is all the more visible in the rest of our chapter this morning. Let's read verses 4 to 8. And after this, there arose war with the Philistines at Gezer. Then Sibachai, the Hushethite, struck down Sippai, who was one of the descendants of the giants, and the Philistines were subdued. And there was again war with the Philistines, and Elhanan the son of Jair, struck down Lamai, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war with Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, struck him down. These were descended from the giants of Gath and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Our third point is this. The reign of the Messiah vanquishes the greatest obstacles. This is very good reading for a young Israelite boy. The Israelites are up against their classic enemies, the Philistines, and David beats them down war after war again and again and again. Not only that, but the Philistines bring giants, and David brings giant slayers. God raises up men under David to face down the most powerful wicked men history has ever produced. And we need some history to see how good this moment is for those returned exiles. Scripture references these races of giant men a few times. There are a few terms for them. They might have been multiple people groups, one people group. We see the Rephaim, the Anakim, the Emim, often identified with the Nephilim going as far back as Genesis. They're not fantastically large people, but they are certainly very large people, large enough to command armies and terrorize the people of God. We see them as the quintessential picture of the powers of the world since Genesis. Genesis. In an age where might makes right, these giants would represent the greatest confidence the world had in itself and its own powers. Who needs God to fight for you when you've got giants? Who needs to bow the knee to God when you've got giants? And whenever these giants come on the scene, God's people's confidence in God is tested, challenged, most shaken. One particular place we see these giant peoples is in Numbers and Deuteronomy when the Israelite spies enter Canaan. These giants are the reason that 10 of 12 spies run back with their tail between their legs and say, we can't do it. They're too big. We can't take the land. And only Joshua and Canaan say, God has promised to fight with us. These giants were the reason that the people in Israel ran off in fear wishing to go back to slavery in Egypt, wandering the desert for 40 years. The giants were too big for them. Of course, in 1 Samuel, you get another story of a giant. All God's people are once again much too afraid to fight the battle. The giant is too big for them. And one boy, like Caleb and Joshua, trusts that God is powerful enough to take on giants, to remove every obstacle in the way of his people. And that boy becomes the king. And now his men, trusting that God gives victory, are just cutting down giants left and right. These ancient warriors who represented this pinnacle of human autonomy in that age, the best that the world could produce, who once seemed to loom so large over God's people and peace in the land. They're now being thrust aside by David's army because the army of the Messiah now all has the confidence that Caleb and Joshua had, that the Lord removes every obstacle between them and dwelling with him in peace. Our world has changed enough that giant warriors are no longer the picture of humanity's confidence in itself without God. Our post-enlightenment picture of humanity probably relies more on things like our independent intellect. Most people today think that Christianity will be beaten by science and humanism rather than giant warriors. But either way, this same heart exists in people. They are bold to prove that they can overcome God and his people, that they have it in them, that same spirit which has existed in us that we've seen since the Tower of Babel. So, we often look out at the world like those Israelites, staring out at the giants on the battlefield, and it seems like too much. Every cultural shift, every example of mob justice, of secular legislation, society rewarding wickedness, so many bold opponents to the gospel, and our hearts want to flee. We look at the giants and we want to turn around and run and hide. And some people really do turn back. They give up on the promises of God. And they say, I want to go back to Egypt. The promises of God, you know what? They really don't sound that good after all. Certainly not good enough to come at this cost. If you can't beat them, join them. Let's just be realistic and take what the world can give us because they have the giants on their side. This is our hearts pulling us to give in to our own slavery, to sin in the world. And many people do give in when they see the cost of following Christ, when they see that there's obstacles in the road, even obstacles which God has promised to remove. The readers of Hebrews were experiencing just such a temptation. Homes were being taken, the world was scorning them, the giants were looking very big for God's people. They stopped visiting Christians in prison. They were afraid to be identified with them. They lost their joy in the face of the world's scorn. They didn't want to grow in their faith. They didn't want to look like mature believers in the face of an oppressive world. They ran from reproach. Many were contemplating leaving the faith entirely. The author of Hebrews exhorts them, Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Our passage this morning sings the praises of those who were not afraid and shrunk back. Not because those were powerful men, but because they were men who entrusted themselves to God. The armies of Israel that saw the giants and went into the battlefield and one by one watched giants thrown down by God. Those original readers of Chronicles can be thankful that David and his men didn't shrink back when the giants came, otherwise they wouldn't exist as a people at all at that point. It encourages them not to shrink back. It reminds us that we, if we are indeed God's people, are not those who shrink back like the exile or like those in the desert who wanted to return to Egypt. Our author of Hebrews goes on in the passage that we read earlier, Hebrews 11, where he shows those who did not shrink back, those who had faith, Abraham, Moses, David, and his heroes, and those who endured persecution, many who fought and endured and watched the victories of the Messiah. Nehemiah didn't shrink back. His men built the wall one brick at a time, a brick in one hand and a sword in another. And when that wall was finished in surprising quick time, Nehemiah writes, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem because they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This is not a promise that all of us are going to be giant slayers. Nor is it a promise that every obstacle that we face is a giant that God promises to slay. These passages are, of course, most uh, commonly misconstrued to be lessons in how to deal with obstacles to your own success, not the kingdom of the Messiah. The giants are the new car that you want to buy or the test that you want to pass. Then God helps you to slay your giant. But this misses what's clearly happening in the big picture of this passage. The giants are obstacles to God's people receiving the promises of God, and God glorifies himself that ensuring that all of his people will receive the land of promise by the means that he himself has ordained to conquer every obstacle. Sometimes the trials in our life are the way that God kills giants we can't see. Overcoming sin and opposition that we ourselves couldn't have even grasped, let alone known how to overcome. Hebrews 11 tells us that so many people conquer in their suffering. Challenging seasons for the church might be times when giants are laid low, just as much as seasons that are encouraging for the church. Sometimes God raises up men to fight giants for the rest of the church. Athanasius against the Pelagians, Augustine against the Arians, Luther against the papal establishment. And not many of those men felt like conquering giant slayers in their day. But they were men who, like David, entrusted themselves to God in faith, knowing that God would lay low every obstacle to the kingdom of his Son and the gospel. Do you sometimes look out and feel like you see giants opposing the kingdom of God? The kind of obstacles that would make men reject their faith or give up on the church. Does it ever fill you with fear or despair when you see the opponents to God's kingdom. Even the ways that this opposition has made inroads into your family, to your friends, and your own life. Does it tempt you to turn back? Or to make faith a private matter? To prioritize your allegiance to culture over your allegiance to Christ? To not stand among and honor and love Him and those who have borne shame for His name? there are many obstacles that could make us afraid. Progressive culture outside the church is increasingly labeling us as backwards, arrogant in our own view of truth, irrational. Liberal culture within the church is trying to tell the world that they are what Christianity really is, whatever the world tells them to be. The world is becoming increasingly proud of its sin and is desperate to silence anyone who would try and remind them that they are working against nature, against reality in their desire to do whatever they please. Political instability and upheaval, the rapid spread of the prosperity gospel, there are a number of things that might touch you personally in your life that seem like obstacles to the kingdom of God. Friends and family affected. And that makes this controversy, this opposition, real. And really painful for you. It adds all the more pressure to you to reject your faith or at least to try and silence it, to become a private Christian, a fearful Christian who hopes that the world won't ask you about the hope that is in you, trying to conceal those things that are meant to define us when we are born again. I have known many Christians who have fought to redefine their Christianity. Because they were too afraid of the opposition in the world. They change their view of scripture. They despise the church and its people. They become a private Christian. They give in to every controversy because they are so terrified of the giants. They turn back in the face of every obstacle. And the author of Hebrews is clear that they are like those Israelites who turned back in the wilderness, begging to go to Egypt. So often when I'm reading church history or a biography, you hear about this major controversy. Maybe it was a recycling of old heresies. Maybe it's a pretty novel heresy. And at the time, that controversy leads so many people astray. It turns so many people who claim they were Christians into lovers of this world because they fall in the face of this persecution. The faithful men in this age, they all need to band together to be diligent. They all need to fight. They preach and they preach and they endure the scorn of the world. The Christians are mocked and opposed and ridiculed. They suffer. This controversy takes blood and sweat and tears for the church. And you know what? I have never heard of it. I didn't know. I slept in peace every night from the terrors of that seemingly great attack on our faith and the faith of my family. The giant was slain long ago. The giant that once looked monumental, that faithful men rightly spent so much time warring against, God laid it low. And he will continue to do so. Everything that we glimpse out in the world around us that seems to have taken hold, that seems rooted, that seems like it might never be defeated, will be defeated. And the crown of this world will be claimed by our Messiah. Every opponent and hero the world can offer will go the way of all of those who came before. And so, in the face of the opposition currently before us, we can say, like Nehemiah says when he's facing down Tobiah and Sambalot and the rest, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from their work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. So friends, really, really ask yourself this question. What are you afraid of? What is the specific things that you fear? What's the reason you might not want to tell your neighbor about the gospel? What's the reason that you would prefer if your colleagues didn't really know a lot about your faith? What's the reason that you would like to tell your friends at school, I'm not that kind of a Christian? What's the reason that you hope people don't know about your allegiance to Christ? Or what's the reason that you would just love it if Christianity itself could define itself a little bit more based on what culture and society tells you is important, rather than defining itself by the gospel of our salvation. Is fear threatening your allegiance to Christ entirely? Fear of what you will lose if you really do take Christ at his word. Take up your cross and follow him. Do not let these new opponents The next in the long line of enemies frighten you. Away from allegiance to the king who has defeated every single one that has come before. He has been in the business of slaying giants since the days of David, since giants existed. His truth has been unshakable for thousands of years. While this world is tossed to and fro by every wave of culture, there are people standing on the rock that was established thousands of years ago at the beginning of history. It is worth being on his side now. It is worth persevering for his sake all the more because he is the one who died for his people, who rose from the dead to win them certain victories based on unshakable promises. He has loved you more than this world can fathom as it tries to pressure you to join them. And his plan is for his glory and the good of his people. It is a plan the world can never touch. So may God strengthen our hands for the work that is before us. May we be fully confident that nothing can stand between God and his plans for Jesus and his people. No enemy, no obstacle, not even our own sin. The victory he has already worked in Christ when he died and rose from the dead, that is a guarantee that we certainly have a victorious God. And he is already reigning. Isn't it good? Isn't it good to belong to him? Isn't it good to stand on this rock that has withstood for thousands of years? While all this world around you is caught in turmoil, and every wind of change, confusion, and despair, and competition, and cancellation, and cruelty, sinning against each other? Isn't it good to belong to Christ? To trust the reign, the Messiah, which gives us an unshakable hope. Let us be filled with confidence that every giant will be slain. And after they are all gone, he will reign forever and ever. He is mighty and victorious and he is ours. Isn't it good when the Messiah reigns? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the reign of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I thank you for the victories he has already won, that death is surely defeated as he rose from the grave, that sin is surely defeated as he lived a perfect life and bore the punishment our sin deserved on the cross. And he shall reign forever and ever. Father, may we as your people be strong in the work before us, entrusting obstacles to you, every obstacle to faith, knowing that you are the God who will certainly continue to be victorious. May we rest in the truth that persists while culture moves from controversy to controversy, even if they would persecute us for it, knowing that we have an unshakable promise that rests in the unshakable strength of our enthroned Messiah and King. To Him be glory and power and dominion now and forever. Amen.